the book of Titus it's in the New Testament, kind of more toward there in the back. Have you ever been involved in a building project, whether you built a house, maybe uh, your company built a building? If you were involved in this project here where we actually constructed this building on this cornfield, you know that there was something that was absolutely essential to its success. And it was more than steel and wood and iron and nails and putty and windows, glass, wires. Critical to the success of building any building is having the blueprint and following it. It's kind of like, you know, what's the most important item for an ox cart? Most critical item for an ox cart is the blueprint, because once you lose the blueprint, you are terminal on ox carts. You can't make them anymore. If you don't follow the blueprint when you're building a building, you're going to end up with total chaos. It'll be absolutely inefficient. You will have things going everywhere. It'll be up to the whim and the fancy of any builder that shows up on that day. But if you have a blueprint, then that building is going to be designed exactly the way the architect intended it. He has thought it through. It's going to have structural integrity. It'll have strength. It'll be efficient. It'll be everything the architect designed if you follow the blueprint. And when it comes to building the church... How in the world is that supposed to happen? I mean, do we just kind of make it up as we go? Do we just kind of wait for the next wind of like an idea like, hey, everybody's kind of doing this. So we're going to do this for a little while and kind of move over here and we're kind of bored with that. So we're going to try this. Or has God given us a divine design that he, the heavenly architect, has insisted that we follow? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely yes. He has given us a blueprint. Churches are not supposed to make it up as they go, go with the flow kind of mentality. God has given us the blueprint of how his church is to develop, what we're to look like, what we're to be, what we're to do, what we're to accomplish, and the process in which that goes about. And it's revealed in the book that we're looking at in in these next uh, few months here, and that is the book of Titus. God lays out the blueprint, the journey of maturity, the vision for every church, and especially the vision for Fellowship Bible Church, of how you and I and us as a church are to grow and develop. And it's real simple. It's, it's our church logo. It's a tree. And a tree has a root system. And as those roots grow and develop, and underground, you can't see them, but as they do, there is basically the same effect that's taking place outwardly that you can see. And as the roots grow deep, branches break forth and they go out and they soon start bearing fruit. And what starts as a seedling or a sapling actually then starts growing, developing, where you have a fully healthy, fruit-bearing, mature tree. And that is the outline of the book of Titus. Chapters 1 and 2 emphasize that God's blueprint is that a church is to grow deep sink deep roots. In fact, he chapter one, he talks about how that happens. You identify godly leaders. Chapter two, you are investing in growing disciples. There is a relationship, a synergism, a reciprocal relationship where people are involved with each other. There is a growing deep. And as a church grows deep, then it also then will be reaching out. And that's what chapter three is all about. It's inspiring, gracious living. Now, as we've come to this book of Titus, Paul is writing to one of his key guys. His name is Titus. He's a Gentile who has actually come to place his faith in Jesus Christ. He was a guy that Paul had thought of highly. He obviously had a deep affection for, and he trusted this man. This was a can-do kind of guy. And he sent Titus with a specific mission, and that is to set in order what remains. In fact, you can see it, chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, he says, I left you... 
in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. What he is going to emphasize here at the very beginning is that if you're going to have a healthy church, you have to have healthy leaders. In fact, you could say this. The spiritual maturity of a church is directly tied to the maturity and the capability of its leaders. Leaders are absolutely essential. And this is God's plan. You establish godly leaders who not only model what it means to walk with Christ, but are able and willing to invest themselves in the lives of others to help other people do the same. So that same pattern will continue. And God doesn't have any other plan B. God doesn't just say, hey, let's just have a collection of people and just kind of gather them, keep them entertained. No, it is rather a group of redeemed people that are growing together in their relationship with Christ. They are becoming mature and they are learning to reach out and to branch out. And it is an effect that is supposed to continue to take place over and over and over again. And the book of Titus emphasizes how God develops a church. Specifically, he begins with saying it all gets started with the leaders. The first essential element for a church to grow deep is it has to have godly leaders. And that's precisely what Titus is to do. It's kind of like this, friends. As go the leaders, so go the people. You've seen this in businesses, right? You see it in schools. You see it on athletic teams. It is especially true in churches. As go the leaders, so go the people. If you've got leaders that are pretty much careless, they're careless, they're not involved, they're not really interested in people's spiritual development, a church will reflect that and it will face its demise. And the Lord is very interested in the health of every single church. In fact, when Jesus, in the book of Revelation, that final book, he gave seven letters to seven churches basically evaluating how they're doing. And some of those churches were called on their lack of leadership. And so what we're looking at here is this is the blueprint. How does a church grow deep? Well, first of all, it has to have some godly leaders. Now, notice what he says. His first, for this reason, I left you in Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. It's about 150 miles long. And at its widest part, it's about 35 miles wide. And in, in, the, uh, in the Mediterranean region, it had kind of had a reputation. There was about 100 cities that most of them lined the coast, and they were fiercely independent. In fact, the people of Crete... Uh, they had a pretty dubious reputation, okay? In fact, one of their guys, you can see this, act, it's actually in Titus 1.12. This guy's name is Epimenides. In 600 B.C., he wrote this, and you can see it in verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are, how would you like this on your welcome to Crete sign, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, Okay? This is one of their own guys, man, right? This is one of their own spokesperson for the island. Let me tell you, we are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, okay? And if you think, well, well, maybe that was just his own opinion. There's another guy by Leonides. In 488 B.C., things hadn't gotten a whole lot better. He, he basically used similar terminology. He said Cretans are always brigands, piratical, and unjust. Brigands have the idea that they're robbers. Piratical, have the, they act like pirates, and they are unjust. They have no concept of fairness. These were the people of the island. But you remember in Acts chapter 2, remember that at the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, something amazing and miraculous happened. These men who had been following Jesus were now filled with his spirit. And they spoke in such a way that people from other parts of the Roman Empire could actually understand them in their own tongues. 
And what occurred that day is that Peter got up and he proclaimed to them that Jesus Christ, the one you crucified, he's the Messiah. And that you, by believing in him, can have forgiveness in his name. And people from all around the Roman Empire, they believed. In fact, it's recorded that over 3,000 people, they believed in Jesus and they were baptized. They identified with a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so these, there were people from Crete. Acts 2 actually records that. They likely put their faith in Christ. They eventually went home. after They were Jewish people, put their faith in Christ. They went home and they said, listen, we have discovered and found the Messiah. Or better yet, he has called us he's awakening our hearts we see it we understand the scriptures all that the old testament is promised about a coming messiah one who would die for our sins one who would rise the fulfillment of isaiah 53 the one who was going to be born in bethlehem and who would die and pay the penalty for our sins the one who would rise again and see his offspring it is jesus the messiah and he has changed our hearts and we believe and they came and they started announcing this message and this is how the gospel goes forth He touches one individual life after another, and they go and they share the transforming work of what Jesus Christ is doing in their life. And as they do, as the gospel goes forth, God brings other people into his kingdom. That is always how it happens. Through transformed lives, people believing in Christ who announce the gospel, God brings other people into the kingdom. And that's what happened on the island of Crete. And so about 30 years later, Titus now is being sent by Paul to this island. And the reason that I bring up the kind of the nature of the people is that not only Jews who were believing, but there were Gentiles. And, you know, this is what happens when you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there's things that are positionally true about us. Like, for instance, we are absolutely forgiven. Our eternity with him in heaven is absolutely secure. God gives what kind of life? eternal life, not probationary life, like we'll see how good you are for the next 10, 20 years. No, he offers and gives eternal life because he unites us with his eternal son. God never sees us in our sin. He always sees us in the son. We're united with him. We can never be separated from him. He loves us with a steadfast, immovable love. But those things are all positionally true, but there is the practical outworking in our life. It's called sanctification, where we are becoming more and more like our true identity in Christ. It's called sanctification as we are being set apart to God. And that is a process. I mean, just think about when you you came to Christ or I think about when I came to Christ. I believed I genuinely had a faith in Jesus Christ. But there were some serious areas in my life that needed to start being addressed. And God started bringing about conviction like, hey, this isn't really in keeping with a child of God. I could read in his word. I had friends that would talk with me. There was just the conviction of the Holy Spirit because now the spirit of God resides in my life. And what he's doing is he's bringing about holiness of living. And so if you've got people that are liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons and they become Christians, they still have a lot of residual aspects of their past that are a part of them. They have the old patterns. And that was certainly true in the island of Crete. This place was wild. This was kind of like, you know, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. I mean, that was just a a very difficult place with all their idol worship and all the massive immorality. Timothy was wanting to bail at different times. Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, keep your head in the game. You keep moving forward. Crete was just as bad. You're going to need someone, a key guy, a guy like Titus. 
And so that's what Titus was sent. He was a point man. He's a clutch player. He is a can-do kind of guy. He's the pinch hitter. He's the guy that you can send into a difficult place who's not going to kind of like bail out the first time things get tough. He has a focus. He understands the mission and the vision of a church. He is called by God. He's equipped. He is not going to bail. And that's what Titus does. He shows up and God sends, God sends him through the Apostle Paul to set in order what remains. This church lacked leadership and it reflected it. Every church that lacks godly leadership reflects it. And furthermore, they were getting eaten alive by these false teachers. You can read about that in the end of chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and following. Chapter 2, they had a little concept of what discipleship meant. And they, furthermore, they weren't bearing a lot of fruit. They weren't establishing themselves in good deeds. Titus, I am, look at verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, set in order... This is a, a great Greek word. It's a compound Greek word. Okay, this is your Greek lesson for the day. Okay, it's got two prepositions tied to a, a word. It's epi, okay, which means upon, dia, which means through, and then orthao, or where we orthos, where we get the idea of straightening. So, like, it was used of someone who is straightening a bone, or or setting a broken bone, or straightening a bone that was bent. That was, that was the word there, orthos. He was setting it. He was making it straight. And so, for instance, we have a specialty in medicine, an orthopedic doctor or surgeon. He works in straightening or setting bones. That's the word that is being used here. Titus is being sent to take what is broken and maligned and not going in the right direction and set it right. It is a difficult process. So don't get the idea, and, and this oftentimes is when people read Titus, they get the idea that Paul sends Titus to Crete. He just kind of walks up into a city and says, hey, where's the Christians? Okay, here they are. Let's come all together. Let's have a little potluck because that's what Christians do, right? And he's going to kind of watch a meeting, and, and Titus is kind of looking around. And after doing this for about an hour, he goes, you know, listen, come on over here, guys. Uh, you know, you, uh, you, you right there. Yeah, you got right in the back. You look like pretty decent fellows. You know what? You're going to be the leaders of the church. You're the elders, all right? And so I hope everything works out real well. Blessings upon you. I'm taking off. And, you, and he just leaves. That is not what happened. Titus didn't go in to make some observations and go, eh, these look like some pretty good guys, pretty successful guys. We'll just call these guys. Uh-uh. What was he called to do? He was called to set in order. He was to call to help grow, establish, and develop leaders. I mean, it's, it's very much like uh, when you went and visited the orthodontist. How many of you had braces? Let's, okay, we can admit this, right? Okay. Whoa, look at that. Do you remember? Okay, I have it too. Do you remember how much fun braces were, right? You know what I mean? Like your mouth, you had teeth going everywhere. You were like, it could have been a prickly pear cactus commercial or something, you know? And you had these teeth going everywhere and you weren't like eating correctly and stuff. And so, so what they did is like the orthodontist, he kind of took a look there like, whoa, I got job security. Look at this. And he took an impression of your mouth, right? And then he developed a plan on which he could actually bring these teeth and straighten them and, and put them so that they actually would have maximum efficiency and work just the way they're supposed to be. In fact, it could be a thing of beauty even. But it's going to require something. It's got metal, right? You have wires going everywhere. And how, anybody have the headgear thing? Okay, yes. Please bring some pictures of the church. It's always fun to see pictures of people with their headgear. I mean, you have these uh, giant things that are just pulling their face all apart there. And I remember when I got my braces, 
I, I remember I was in so much pain after that. I wanted to take wire cutters and start snipping that. And it really, I, I was very close to trying to attempt that, which made matters worse. It was painful. It was difficult. But in order for my teeth to get straight, there had to be a process in order to bring them together and, and, and align them. That's what's involved in leadership development. It is a process where you are taking people that are maybe really messed up and going in the wrong direction. But by the spirit of God and God using people to invest in your life, you can grow and develop. Leaders don't just like, there they are. Leaders are developed by churches, by godly men and women who are investing in the lives of other people. That's what he's supposed to do. Help these people grow and develop to a point where you can actually appoint them. So Titus is sent to this island to give direction, and he is to develop leaders. And he is, once these people are at a point where they are established, they're growing, and it's obvious to the church body at large, he appoints them. He actually makes an official act where they are recognized as called by God to serve as elders. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about the word elder. Okay? Now, generally, churches are about the only place that refer to elders. However, it really it comes from Judaism. It comes from the Hebrew scriptures. They didn't, we use the word leader. Okay? When I say leader, everybody kind of knows, like, oh, here's a guy who kind of knows what's going on, or she's the one that's calling the shots and, and making decisions. Well, the word for leader, really, in the Hebrew scriptures was elder. Okay? And so an elder was one. He was, he was maybe a leader in the tribe. He certainly was the head of a family. He was proven. He was a God-fearing man. He had strong moral character. He had integrity. He could make decisions. He was just. He was fair. He had a heart for God. He knew how to invest in others. He had his act together. He walked with God, and these people were recognized as elders. And so that's what we find in the early church, is they just adopted the same principle, since many of the early Christians were Jews, They understood elder, leader. You need leaders in the church. They called them elders, okay? And so that's what they are. They are men, okay? And notice, you're going to, you can notice it here. He says, I want you to point elders in every city as I directed you, verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach. Elders were and have been and are to be always men, okay? By the way, it would be hard to be a husband of one wife if you were a woman functioning in an elder role. Okay, so they are men. God set this up who are to exercise spiritual oversight. They are to lead by example. They are to feed the flock. They are protecting. They are teaching. They are investing their lives in the development of the people in that church so that they in return can do the same. They have a clear-cut vision. They'll not be distracted. They say no to a lot of other things in life that they may be very successful at so that they may function and fulfill the focus of helping a church grow and develop. And so they are called elders, and they are, they are critical to the health of a church. Like, remember in Acts chapter 14, remember the first missionary journey? They went, and they went to all these different cities. They preached the gospel. Some people believe they get run out of town. That was pretty much the standard MO. They go, preach the gospel, and things actually got worse. You know, then they take some people like, we really don't like you. We're throwing rocks at you. In fact, they, in Derby, they left Paul dead for dead. Thought, this guy's dead. But, you know, after they preached the gospel and people believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they, had, they turned from their sin, their self-centeredness. They were trusting in Jesus Christ alone. They started growing in their relationship with Christ They grow just like you and I grow, reading the word, because the scriptures take on a whole new life when you're a Christian, right? 
and talking to God. And so then you know what they did? They backtracked and they went back to every single city that they had preached the gospel to. And there they appointed elders. The men that were growing, that had a real heart for God and a heart for the health and the well-being of the other people that had moved from being self-centered to missional. These were the ones that they appointed as elders so that they could guide and guard the church. That was the pattern. You can find it in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. They fasted, they prayed, and then they appointed. They appointed these guys. And godly leadership is essential to the health of a church. And really, these guys, they had to deal with the issues in their own life. I told you, elders don't just appear like that. It's not like you just wave a wand and like, whoa, there's an elder. Or you just, a church should wait for like, whoa, man, I really wish some really godly guys would show up so we can call them elders. No, the church is to be involved in developing its people, especially its leaders. That's what it's to do. And so that means that people, elders, have to deal with the issues in their life. All of us have issues in our life. Do you know that? Just look around. You're sitting up some pretty messed up people. Okay, we all have major issues in our life. But you know what? Jesus Christ has saved us. He's redeemed us. He has given his Holy Spirit in our life, and he's bringing about transformation. That means that we've got to deal with the issues in our life. We're not hamstrung by them. We can experience complete forgiveness. Sometimes this is, these are tough events, and this is oftentimes a long process, but people grow and develop that as God's plan and intent for the church. And as these certain men, they do that, they come to a point where it's, they've actually resolved these issues They have moved from thinking about themselves to actually thinking about the well-being of Christ and his mission and his ministry in the church. And they function as so. And it becomes pretty apparent to everybody else. And they're appointed as elders. By the way, there's something else that you need to know. See that? They're to appoint elders. You see that? That is plural. Elders is always plural in the New Testament unless actually like Peter is referring to himself as, as an elder. But it's always plural. It's always a plurality of godly men. It's not an elder. The church doesn't have one guy who's in charge and he calls all the shots and he just does all the things and makes all the decisions. That may work for some people's philosophies. It is not congruent with the New Testament. There is always a plurality of godly men. Now, there may be leaders among leaders. Some elders are going to have a very public role. Some will be uh, perhaps more behind the scenes. All of them have to have the ability to teach. Every single one of them has to be investing themselves in the development of the health of the church. But they are they're going to be a variety of men who will exercise their gifts in a team capacity. Just like a church is supposed to do ministry and community, so elders function in the same role. They're united, and they function together as one. They have absolute unanimity. Now, some of the elder meetings, they might have some pretty, pretty serious discussions on some issues, but once they come to a prayer for resolve, they function as one. They function as a team. And every single person is important. Every elder has a role to play, and they cannot bail on their role because, frankly, the mission is critical. And especially the needs facing the church here in the 21st century require godly men walking with him and functioning as elders are are declared and defined 
in the New Testament. And so let's just talk a little bit about elders. There's three different terms that are used rather synonymously in the New Testament. There's elders, okay, and then there's the overseers and bishops, and then you have pastors. And you find these three terms. They're used rather synonymously. What they do is they highlight a particular function of the same office or certain features. So, like, for instance, the term elder, that emphasizes dignity and maturity, Okay, an elder isn't just oh, he's an old guy. He's an elder. Okay, you can be old, but not spiritually mature. That'd be sad. If I was in that situation, I would say, you know what? Today, I'm moving forward. I'm I want to start growing. Okay, but the word elder emphasizes dignity and maturity. Then there's that pastor or pastor or shepherd. This talks about leadership and caring and teaching. And then there's the third term that you find used in the New Testament is overseer or bishop, which bishop has really been a, a misused word, but it, ha- it speaks with the idea of functioning, giving guidance and exercising authority. One of the things you will find in the New Testament, this is how God has set up leadership in a local church. They are always qualified men. There's always more than one, plural, and it is local, local. The idea that you report to somebody else, someplace else, far off away, another country, is not really how the New Testament is established. They establish leaders in each one of the individual churches. Now, that's not to say there wasn't an idea where they were helping each other and involved in each other's lives and reporting back and giving reports. But leadership was local, it was plural, and it was qualified. Now, there is a major characteristic of leaders in the church. It's overarching. And it is always emphasized. You can find the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And it begins with being above reproach. That means that this individual is blameless. He is a man of unquestionable character. There's no like handle on his life that you can grab a hold of. There's nothing to accuse him of. There's, there's no loophole for criticism. Now, this doesn't mean that they're sinless. Okay? I, you know that, right? Because there is no person that is sinless apart from Jesus Christ. He was the only perfect, absolutely righteous man. That, but they're not sinless, but they have resolved and they handle their sin issues biblically. Meaning, if they've offended, they ask for forgiveness. They have, they're walking with God. When God brings something to their attention, it is addressed. There is no significant issue that like, if you were told, like, you know, so-and-so is an elder at your church, they'd go, oh, what? you got to be kidding. Do you remember what he did last year? He's left his wife. Well, you got to be kidding. No, none of that. This is a man who says, basically, people can say, like, you know, you want to end up something like that. Look at, his, look at his walk. Look at the characteristics of his life. And so that's what he is. He is to be above reproach. This is, by the way, the characteristics of an elder, if you're going, like, this message really isn't about me because I'd probably never be an elder. And so this doesn't apply to me wrong. The characteristics and the traits of an elder are the characteristics and traits that we all aspire to. They are to model and exemplify what Christ is seeking to do in all of our lives. Okay. And so really these are guidelines and for us to go, you know, this is the track that the Lord is seeking to develop in my life. Because the elders are just to exemplify what he's doing in the church as a whole. And so they're to be above reproach. There's just no major sin issue in their life that people can be uh, pointing to. So you look at their social life, 
their family life, their business life, their spiritual life, their marital life. You look at there and you see, is there some sort of major hold on their life that, you know, there's some more work to be done, some more development to take place. Now, where in the world, where are you going to find people that are above reproach? I mean, come on. And where, where are they developed? Are they developed in seminaries? Is that where they are? No. Do you know the number one school of church leadership development? Do you know where it is? It's the home. It's your home. Leaders are developed in their home. The most effective school for church leadership is the home. Leadership that begins in the home can bear fruit in the church. You can kind of remember it this way. Leadership in the church is matured through relationships at home because there are so many parallels to being a leader at home and being a leader at a church. Just like a home has functions, roles, people are fulfilling things, people are growing and developing So it is with the church. If you can find a guy who can lead his home, who's invested, who cares about the well-being of his of the people in his in his little flock, who are trying to help, trying to help them develop, who loves them, who is sacrificing for them, who's investing in them. If you can find a leader in that kind of home. You got a guy that potentially could lead in the church. The number one place for leadership development is the home. And so Paul says this. Listen, Titus, I'm leaving you in Crete. I want you to set in order what remains. It's going to be messy, oftentimes ugly, certainly difficult, many times challenging. And I want you to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, this is where you look. If any man is above reproach, he is the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. You want to start looking at their home life. What are they really? You know, we can all put on a nice smile, right? I mean, you could have been yelling at your kids and screaming at your wife, and then you you get out of the car like, ah, you know, everything's fine, right? What's really going on? What is really going on in your home? That's going to tell you about what's really going on in here. You've got to get past the facade, Titus. Get in their home. Find out, because that's where leaders are made. And it's going to begin with, loving leadership of your wife you're looking for this kind of guy verse six namely if any man is above reproach the husband of one wife this is literally a one woman man okay now obviously he's not saying like well if you're married then you're qualified to be an elder it's not what he's after okay he's after a man who is devoted to his wife he is singularly devoted to her and it's, it's evident in how he, he acts with her, how he treats her. And because if you could get a guy who can love his bride, you may just have found a guy who can love Christ's bride, the church. Right? Okay? Let's be real. Marriage can be difficult. I know many of you are praying for Karina. Okay? You know, it's like, how does he make it with him? You know? Marriage can be tough. Every marriage goes through hard times, difficult times. I remember at a concert, Stephen Curtis Chapman said that, you know, sometimes, sometimes they felt like they could, he was talking about his wife, that they might want to just trade each other for a nice cold Diet Coke, okay? Because what is he saying? He's saying, hey, it doesn't matter who you're married to, marriage can sometimes be challenging and difficult. But on the other hand, 
It is a place of love and beauty, and it is based on a commitment, not just fleeting feelings. You, gotta, you find a guy who can love his wife, who is devoted to his wife. You find a guy that may potentially actually be a leader in his church. He is a one-woman man. Now, that's not actually saying that he has to be married. Mind you, the Apostle Paul wasn't married. But if he's not married, he's not the flirtatious type. You know what I'm saying? He's just running around and keeping all the girls good thinking about him no he's a singularly devoted man he's got his emotions and his affections directed and in control and so that's what you're supposed to do go and find men who have learned and are learning how to love their wife and you know if you find such a guy you're probably finding a guy who could lead pretty well in the church now you're going like okay i think i get it that does make sense to me Let me take you back to the island of Crete. Remember? Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, right? Remember those guys? Okay, let me just tell you standard Roman practice in the Gentiles, especially if you are a man of money. Okay? Most of these guys in that category had three women they were sexually involved with. They had generally a slave girl that either lived in their house or their compound, They practiced religious rites. Many pagan rituals involved prostitution. And so they oftentimes frequented in their religious ritual with a religious or a cult prostitute. And then they had a wife for, quote unquote, legitimate children who would carry on the family name. And she basically was in charge of raising those children. You got a guy who comes to Christ with that kind of background there's some serious changes that have to take place in a life. And mind you, Christianity always changes culture to bring it in line with God's morality. And so that's exactly what started happening on the island of Crete. And so when he's saying, is a one-woman man, you need to find someone who's got a track record of devotion. That means that some of these guys had a track record that was plumb out wild. And yet, this is the nature of the gospel. Jesus Christ transforms lives. He changes direction. He builds affection for holiness and a desire for living right. And he actually enables it through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so that's what he's doing here. Titus, find these kind of men. This is what you're supposed to establish them. So you have guys that are off into that pattern. They need to be confronted and say, "Uh, that is not in keeping with the holiness of God. Go this way, and we're going to help you. We're going to come alongside you. And so that's what he's called to do. Now, what, you're, what we're trying to establish here is that if you're going to look for leaders in the church, they've got to, first of all, be leaders in their home. And this morning, we're talking about that they need to be men who are devoted to their wives, one woman kind of men, okay? Now, I want to talk, next week, we're going to talk about their, the family part, especially the children, But I'd like to talk a little bit about just the general nature of family leadership and and its parallels and the kind of leader that you're looking for, not only in a family, but in a church, i.e., this is what God is seeking to develop in each one of us, and it's it's critical to the church, okay? So let me tell you the kind of leader that will not work at home and at church, okay? You need to know this. The guy who's overly critical or he's passive— I mean, he's just kind of floating around like a jellyfish, right? And he's doing nothing. And he's trying to always get out of something. He just kind of floats away, floats to this room, goes out to the garage. Um, the guy who, uh, who's overbearing, 
right? Archie Bunker on steroids. You know, he's blowing up at everybody. He's just, he's just overwhelming and overbearing. Um, the guy who's directionless, he, he just doesn't really have a point to his leadership. He's not sure where he's going, where he's been, how he's going to get there. He's just directionless. He just goes with the wind. A mean-spirited guy. Always bad news in the church and horrific in a home. The guy who's undependable. You just can't count on him. Says one thing, put a real good show, real smile. Oh, yeah, I'll be there. You can count on me. But he's just, he's got this major pattern, just never showing up or not really doing what he says he's going to do. It's uh, destructive in a church and in a home. Let me give you a couple others. The guy who's super self-centered, just always about him, doesn't work in your family, and it'll never work in the church. And let me give you one other, the prideful guy. He's arrogant. Sure, he's got some gift, probably got some money, he's got some charisma, maybe some talents, maybe an education, maybe some accolades. It's all gone to his head. I'll tell you, that kind of guy, he creates havoc in his home. And if he ever gets anywhere close to church leadership, that church is in trouble. What is Christ trying to develop? What kind of leadership? How is it that we can truly be one woman, one, uh, one woman kind of man, a, a leader that loves our home? I just want to give you some distinctives that Christ is trying to establish in every leader. And I'd like to be real practical because let me tell you this, guys. Your wives are longing for this. Your children are waiting for this. And this is what Christ is seeking to develop. He, first of all, it just kind of begins with being just dedicated to Christ. Okay. There, there is truly a commitment to walk with him, to know him, to experience him, to live with him, that he's a tr- top priority in your life. You're going to bloom or you're planted. He's, you're going to be God's man where he's placed you. Um, let me give you some other qualities that you're looking for, that you're delighting in the privilege and the process, that there's actually like, hey, this is cool that I am growing. Obviously, none of us have arrived, right? But there's, you, you're, it's like a thrill to actually be in the process and realize, you know, God's given me a unique role. You know, my family, these, these kids, my wife, you know, I, you know, this is my family. I, I have a privilege. God's given me the responsibility to care for them. That's, that's pretty cool and pretty scary at the same time, right? Let me give you some others. That you are desiring the development of the people in your family. You want your wife to grow to godliness. And, and you actually maybe try to make that happen. You, you give funds. You pay for retreats, books. What does she want? Your kids, you want to see them grow and develop. You'll make sacrifices to anything to try to help be involved in that process. Um, let me just tell you another thing. Being a discerning, directional leader. That you have the ability to determine what's right and what's wrong. What you're going to say no to as a family and what you're going to say yes to. And that you, you have the ability and you're willing to make decisions. Okay? Now, and when you do, that doesn't mean like you're just Mr. Autocratic and you just make every decision, but you, you involve, especially if you're wife, with your wife, you're going to talk through decisions, major decisions, okay? You're not calling all the shots, but you're, they're willing and able to, okay? Let me give you a couple others. That you are devoted to your family even when it's difficult. This is huge. It's, it's called shepherding because sometimes it doesn't, think like, it doesn't seem like it's going the way you'd like it and it's difficult, but the guy who's walking with God and is going to be God's man, his family, and the church, he's there. I'm going to give you one other. He develops a culture of love and acceptance at home. 
And frankly, guys, it gets started with you. The tenor of your home, in many ways, is established by you. Okay? You're just an unhappy camper. You're kind of like a wounded grizzly bear running around your house. Your home's going to reflect that. And it's not going to be pretty. And if you got turned loose into a church, that church is going to start taking on that kind of tone. So let me just, and it's just I want to be very practical how you can develop as a loving leader of your wife. Um, first of all, I want to tell you that I feel like this is absolutely necessary for every single guy to hear. And there's going to be truths that are practical for all of us, men and women, boys and girls. But we are getting decimated as Christians. The divorce rate among Christians, people leaving their spouse for whatever reason. I mean, the church is looking more and more like the world, so, so much so that even the world is mocking the church. And for good reason. We have abandoned what God has called us to. We have not taken him seriously. We say, oh, yeah, the Bible is the word of God. But I, we treat it like it's a comic book. Or like it's a red book, and we'll cut out little sections that we might be interested in, and the rest of it we're going to toss or chunk, as we say in Texas. That doesn't work with God. Let me just be real practical. You want to grow and you want to develop? Be a loving leader for your home, for your wife? You need to be maturing in your relationship with Christ, and it has to be a first priority. If you've lost your first love, Jesus says, hey, I know all about that. I want you to remember, I want you to repent, and I want you to redo. His arms are open wide and he says, come and learn from me. Experience the goodness of life. I mean, the joy of knowing Jesus. There's nothing that compares to it. There's no place that you can go. No entertainment that can be put before you. than the joy, the profound effect of knowing the Savior. And so you want to walk with him. Maybe you begin your day with him. Pray. You, you read his word that you're actually spending some time taking this food into your life where his word becomes part of the fabric of your being. He guides you, directs you, he encourages you, confronts you. But you're growing as a Christian as you're abiding in Christ. Let me give you just another, just real practical point here. You've got to maximize your marriage, okay? Strong marriages are marriages that I have a continual investment in. That there is communication, discussion, praying together, you're sharing experiences together, you enjoy one another, you are, get this, forgiving each other regularly. Okay? There's, come on, be man enough once you've messed up to say, hey, listen, I am sorry for doing what I did. Will you forgive me? And wives, will you be gracious enough to do so and to do the same when you've been the one who's been offending? Let me, uh, let me just make this real simple, guys. A lot of you have yards, right? Oh, now we're talking about yards. Lawnmowers, right? And how many of you like green grass? Yes, all, all of you guys, right? You like green grass, right? And so some of you have water systems. Some of you, are, you have little watering systems. But I make sure everything gets just the right. Let me just tell you, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. It's greener where you water it, right? It is greener where you water it. You want a strong, healthy, godly marriage? You're going to have to pour some water on it. You're going to have to invest some time and some energy and some love. You're like, ooh, Grant, it's kind of cool at my house, if you know what I mean. The Lord is our strength. 
and he will enable you. He will give you the strength to love your wife. And by the way, he desires it. So rejoice in your mate. Let me give you another one. This is absolutely critical. This is applicable to all of us. Manage your mind. Manage your mind. Let me tell you where the battle starts. It starts in your mind. This is what happens. Something, someone, grabs your attention. It's an attraction. And then, obviously, you notice it. I mean, we're beings. We walk through. We hit, we're perceived. We have senses, eyes. We hear things. We see something, and it grabs our attention. But from that attention, if it can move to the mode where it's involving your feelings or your thinking, it's kind of like then the lure is being set. If it is something that you shouldn't be thinking about, it's not excellent, not noble, not worthy, then it gets set when your feelings and your thinking start getting involved in that. And then finally, the final step is action. Begins with attention, feelings, thinking, and then you start moving like, how could I get that? Friends, anytime we encounter things that we should not be involved in, that is always the pattern. And let me tell you what Peter said, First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's what you've got to do. You have to stay away from it. And so we need to learn how to treat each other properly. You might want to write this down. First Timothy chapter five, verses one and two. If you want to know how do you treat men and women, that tells you he lays it out. He says this. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, as younger men, as brothers, as older women, older women. How do you treat them? As mothers. You guys got this figured out? And younger women as sisters. And then he qualifies that in all purity. Friends, if you can adopt the mindset of treating people like that, you can enjoy people, appreciate people. It changes things. Start seeing people as brothers, sister, mother, father, and it changes your perspective. You can actually enjoy and appreciate people. And if you find that you're attracted to someone else of the opposite sex, let me tell you what you can do that will be extremely effective. Pray for their holiness. And for your own. Do it. Pray for their holiness and your own. And God will reorient your heart and get you back on track. Friends, this is dangerous stuff. I mean, we'll all face temptation. Absolutely. The question is how to respond to it. Let me give you a couple others. Monitor your media intake. Okay? Monitor your media intake. We live in a sex-saturated culture. I mean, lust, sex, it sells anything from cosmetics to cars, beauty products to bananas. I mean, it's, it's out there. It is alluring. It's on billboards. It's on, on most TV ads. I mean, think about it. There's research that's shown that most of the sexual activity that takes place on TV shows happens with people that are not married. And, and you think it, it permeates our movies. It permeates so many TV shows. And so then you hear this. Well, you know what? It doesn't really affect me. You're kidding yourself. You are fooling yourself. Frankly, about 80% of the stuff that's out there is dangerous. Paul said, Timothy, final words, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. You know what? Listen to me. Now flee 
from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee from it. Don't cozy up to it. Don't think like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of used to this because I've been living in this kind of world. Uh-uh, it is dangerous. It is eroding your heart. It explains your coldness to God and your coolness to your spouse. It is dangerous and it must stop now. You've got to manage your media intake. If it is not something that you wouldn't be, if it's, if it's something that you'd be embarrassed about by having the folks in the church seeing like you're working at that, then cut it out. Make the decision. God will enable you and he will help you. But listen, your eye, it's the gate, it's the lamp of the body, and what you see, you become. This is very serious business. What you're on your computer screen, what magazines, what books you're reading, what you're watching, friends, manage your, monitor your media intake. Be very careful. If there's something on DVD that you're seeing, turn it off. Something on TV, change the channel. And if you are incapable of doing that, then you are not responsible enough to be watching it. Watch it with someone else. Have someone with you. But we have got to start changing gears and understanding what God's holiness is all about. Let me give you a couple more. Minimize your opportunities for temptation. Okay? Minimize the opportunities for temptation. Jesus said this, Matthew 26, verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watching. Get on the alert. And when you see someone taking the wrong direction, something taking the wrong direction... That's when you say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. Lord, help me. And I'm focusing on Christ. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Okay? If you've got a certain set of friends that just kind of keep you moving the wrong direction, those really aren't friends. You need to say, you know what, I I can't do this. You probably need to establish another game plan. Let me give you just a couple more. Magnify the consequences. You need to ask yourself, is this really worth it? You know what? Buying into temptation is extremely short-sighted. Ask that fish you caught this summer. You know that took that worm? And it got, whoa, look at that worm. And that bass, and it nailed there and like, wow, look at this. He had no, he thought he was in for a nice little treat, right? No one will notice. It cost him his life. And you ate him, Remember? Guess what? Temptations like that. It looks alluring. Oh, this is cool. No one will know. It'll feel so good. I'll feel alive for the first time in years. And you bite on it. Friends, it'll it'll possibly destroy you. And some of this stuff, very serious, like adultery, immorality. You know, I wish sometimes you could be in my office or maybe be in part of a few of the conversations or scenes that I've been involved, you probably need to hear someone wail and cry and be absolutely distraught because their spouse abandoned them or left them for someone else. Because once you see it and once you see it and and feel it and been there, it helps you really keep a strong perspective on just how dangerous sin is. Friends, magnify the consequences. Read the book of Proverbs. That'll help you. That'll, point, that'll paint the picture of what this really looks like. Friends, it's, it's very short-sighted. We need the grace of God. And, you know, I mean, it's dead silent here, and there's a reason for that. Because this is serious stuff. And there's some folks here that I likely have bit off on temptation. 
And they've done the wrong thing. None of us are without sin. Let me tell you, in Christ, there's always forgiveness. We are not saved. We are not Christians because our lives are cleaned up. We are Christians because we have a perfect Savior and we believe in him. And it doesn't matter where you're at and what you've done. You can experience the forgiveness of Christ if you will be broken because God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, there is eternal forgiveness in Christ, but you do need to know that there's oftentimes earthly consequences for bad decisions. And finally, make an investment in some a few key godly friends. It's called camaraderie, a band of brothers. Having a few people in your life that you can actually talk with and share with, commune with, pray with. I'll tell you, there's something about those kind of relationships. There's a synergism. There's an encouragement. We know that, hey, I'm a part of another group of guys or gals, and we're walking with God. And friends, leadership in the church, you know where it's matured? You know where it's made and established? It comes through the relationships at home. And this is what God is intending not only for Titus to do on the island of Crete and all those churches. Friends, this is what God's intending to do here and now. Develop these kind of leaders. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the absolute clarity in which you have spelled out all that you're desiring for us to become and all that can be our reality by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and learning to walk with him. I thank you for the godly elders that you have given our church. We pray for their protection. And we pray that you might continue to raise up men who will be able to meet this role, be qualified, and to know the calling, the commitment, and the convictions of being men whom you've selected to lead this church. So, Lord, would you be at work in all of our lives? You desire holiness in the innermost being. You desire to be worshipped and praised with lives that are pure and tongues that have been cleansed. So, Lord, we worship you. And we do so in spirit and truth because we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.